Hi, welcome back. You're listening to Charlie Higson and Friends here on Scala Radio. And my friend this week, uh, he's only my friend for this week, <laughs> is Bob Mortimer. And uh, Bob, this next piece, I'm, I don't know anything about it, but you chose it as something that you would like to introduce to the world, um, or at least to me. Uh, it's, it's Alternate Repetitions by Laurent Jury. I know nothing about him or the track. Well, he's a French, I suppose you would say, composer, but he mainly does um, film and TV scores and, and has a big, li you know, uh, library of music that you can pay for to put on your movies or put on your ah. little films and so on. I think it has echoes of the, the, the Bach piece that we played earlier. It's a cello piece with a, mm. with a repetitive melody, you know, that um, chugs it along. It's a piece that I came across when I was looking for music for Gone Fishing. Ah. And we wanted to find one of those pieces of music that celebrates the the um, environment that we're in, mm -hmm. that's quite hopeful and optimistic, but has that kind of underlying sadness, you know, just because it's two old blokes. <laughs> Through all the three series, this was the best bit of music we got that kind of... Um, what did Dragged you play, it, all to, those play it against? What were you doing at the time when this played on the show? The, these pieces always work when we're doing nothing. Yeah. So we're just fishing. It'd um, be quite interesting, wouldn't it, to actually write down everything you say in an episode and see how many pages that was. I do see it, Charlie. We oh, see you do? Ah, yeah. so someone transcribes it all so you can, A whole lot, you can edit yeah. it. And what is it, about three pages? <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? The, 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 the getting exactly the right balance of the type of music to play against something. I mean, there's uh, what's that uh, property show that is famous for its uh, on the nose music choice? That's Homes Under the Hammer. Homes Under the Hammer, yeah, where, you know, if it's raining, they'll play It's Raining Men. That's right, yeah. Uh, and they sort of do it as a bit of a joke. But, but you know, in a show like yours, getting that, that music exactly right so it sets the right mood without necessarily being too obtrusive and shouting about itself too much. Yeah, and I think, and I chose this because I think it's the most perfect one we ever found. That was alternate repetitions by Laurent Dury. I'm going with a full French pronunciation now. Um, chosen by Bob Mortimer for this show and also for his fishing show, Gone Fishing with Paul and Bob. So Laurent Dury is a, is a sort of a, a library music composer, I guess. And I, I've got a friend who, who does that. He, he does lots of stuff in music, but he also records a lot of library music, which, which he puts out there. And... It's amazing because you think there must be so much library music, so many thousands and thousands of hours. But he has a pretty high hit rate of getting mm. stuff on onto TV. I mean, I guess there are so many channels now and so many shows that just need a bit of music and can't afford their own composer. You're listening to Charlie Hickson and Friends. And my guest this week is Bob Mortimer. And Bob has picked the next track, which is from a composer we've both chosen this week. It's Faure. Hey?
was in Paradisum from Fowray's Requiem in D minor, played by the LSO Chamber Ensemble. And that is the choice of my guest, Bob Mortimer, here on Charlie Higson and Friends this week. We were talking before, Bob, about religion and religious music. That obviously has strong religious connotations, but I'm sensing that that's not why you've chosen it. I think I chose it because it's the piece of classical music that comes nearest for me to like a chill out vibe. Right. With that. Is it a triangle that's playing in it? That little thing? Let's say it is. I don't Let's know. <laughs> it may well be a triangle, yes, which is, which is one of the most overlooked orchestral instruments. But it's amazing that that tiny triangle can <laughs> cut through an entire orchestra. So do you find yourself focusing on the triangle in a sort of yes I find myself focusing on it and it makes me relax it puts me in the moment I used to play the triangle in a reggae band (laughs) I left out the triangle is an important part of reggae yes but I left after a couple of weeks because it was just one thing after another (laughs) that's um Bob, I'm hoping you haven't chosen that track simply to elbow in (laughs) that cheesy old joke I actually did um, play the triangle in a friend's band. Uh, they occasionally played sort of Cajun style music, of which the triangle is a big part. Right. Uh, and I actually did get quite quite good at it, playing the strong rhythmical triangle that you get right. in Cajun music. But so, so Bob, I mean, you say you don't actually put that put music on that often. So, would you put the Faure Requiem deliberately on at a time where you wanted to relax? Yes. Well, I, I mean. As I say, I listen to music on car journeys. So say if I'm going up... Uh, it's if you want to nod off, you might put the... Uh, the no, I tend to, it's like I, I tend to go podcast on a long journey, do a right. podcast, then do my favourite music. And yes. then just when the journey's becoming too long and the joy has gone yes. from the motoring, I like to put something like that on. Is there that thing in driving where, you, where your brain sort of switches into a different mode and you're kind of at one with the car and the road? And you maybe just want a piece of music that will just carry you on and, and keep you going. Yeah, um, that's what I would use that for. But not, you, you've never found a moment when you're at home and thinking, you know what, I'd really like to chill out. I'll put the Faraday on. <laughs> well, no. But... Well, maybe you should, Bob. <laughs> I think you need to get, you need to buy one of those old gramophones, like we discussed earlier, yeah. and buy a crackly old uh, vinyl copy. Yeah. And lie on the floor stare at the ceiling and, and listen to it. I'll give it a go. It's, I know it sounds very appealing, but like that. I like the lying on the floor bit. It's good for the back too. When I saw that you had chosen uh, a Faure, I thought, well, I'll, I, I'd quite like to play another Faure piece, which you may be not familiar with. It is his Pavan, Masterpieces in Miniature. Uh, because, I, you know, I sensed in general you don't like the big showy, flashy pieces of of. of of classical, you prefer something more contemplative. I very much so. Yeah, um, it's like with the opera. Um, I didn't like the beginning of Otello because it's all very rousing, yeah, and loud and brash. And no, I don't go for that. But once it gets uh, meditative, and I really enjoy yeah. it. Now, Bob, to a lot of people, you are Bob off of Vic and Bob. Yeah, another group of people. There's obviously a big overlap. You're Bob off of Gone Fishing with uh, Paul and Bob. And to many people, you're also Bob off of Would I Lie to You? Yes, I should um, think that's probably the biggest group, actually, Charlie, to be honest. It, it probably is, yeah. But you are you are something of a master at that because you've had 
you've had quite a, an extraordinary life in some ways. Well, actually, it's funny because um, I have to say, I have just um, been lucky enough to, to read a sort of early version of you've written your autobiography, haven't you? I have, yes. Um, and I what's thought, it called? Maybe And Away. And Away. I thought it had lying in the title. Um, yes, it did, but uh, I, I, I tired of that. Um, <laughs> Coming up with a title for a book is really tricky. And if it's your own life, I thought Vic Reeves came up with a cracker for his autobiography. Yes, his was good. Yes, his real name being Jim Moyer. He called his book Me Moyer, which has the one meaning of, well, I am Jim Moyer, rather, Vic Reeves. And also you put them together and you get memoir. <laughs> you know, and, and reading that book, your life is a sort of, crazy juxtaposition of of the mundane and the extraordinary and and the two often sort of rubbing up against each other and colliding which which i think in many ways has been the, the sort of core of the comedy that you do with with vic of that putting together this you know this these sort of two ordinary guys from the northeast with sort of flights of fantasy and surrealism or madness but it's always rooted in a, in in the everyday yeah i mean it's interesting um writing the book charlie because I, I would I, I think i probably had to, for me it seems like obviously seems like a very ordinary life um but when you go through the process of writing the book i think i i think i've been able to remember things in a fun way i must have been um a good watcher yes no well we were talking earlier where where when we first met that, that you found me a little bit intimidating but i was just quite shy and it comes across in the book that you are quite shy I used and, to. Be. Yes, I used you to be. are. So you obviously, yes, like many shy people, are an observer. Yes, and you know, um, you're not being entertained by other people, so you're entertaining yourself. And part of that is watching the little movies that occur out on the street or in the classroom <laughs> that you're not part of. You know, did memories come back to you that you'd forgotten, but in the process of of concentrating on the book, that you you suddenly thought, oh my gosh, yeah, I forgot about that. That'd be good. Yeah, lots of, you know, lots and lots, Charlie. And the difficult thing is, is knowing which ones to put in, because yeah. as soon as you remember something, it, it, it feels very important just mm. because it's the thing that you've just remembered. <laughs> um, I, I've just put my favorite memories in there. You know, there's lots of others, but they're, they're the ones that have, I, I can't put my finger on it, but, you know, at the age of 60, sort of two or whatever, these are the memories that seem to have resonance for me. Yeah. Don't know why. I don't know what it is they mean to me, but um, you know they're the ones I've plumped for. Um, yeah, and 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 you know I I think it, it's a it's a great book and a, a very charming. And you know there there are those moments where you are thinking, is he telling the truth here? Because <laughs> which you do so well on uh, would I lie to you? Because well, a you're a fantastic liar. <laughs> but B you have you do have had these extraordinary things unexpected things happen to you during your life that you can quite casually trot out. And I, I, you always find that the other contestants on the show just don't know. They just don't know either way. I think I mentioned in the book, Charlie, I think I just found a place where um, I could, I could perform as me, you know, the no script. Um, yes. No one else rely, yes. relying on me. And yes, it's a, uh, it does seem to work for me. I well, it is, a, it, it is a great thing where someone manages to create their public persona, as it were. 
I mean, I think probably the best example of that is probably Stephen Fry, who has that public persona of Stephen Fry. But we know that actually the real Stephen Fry, you know, he has his struggles with depression and all that kind of thing. But he has worked out a way to be Stephen Fry in public. And, mm. I, and I, you know, that's great. I think watching you do that on Would I Lie to You, that, that great, we've got a great public persona for Bob Mortimer now. But I always look forward to doing it, Charlie. It's... Um... It might be my greatest achievement. It's just <laughs> telling lies for a few minutes. But it is, it is genuine, isn't it? You, when you open those cards, you, you haven't read those things before. If it's a lie, the first time you ever see it is when you turn it over. Right. If it's a truth, it will be a truth that has been selected from right. a, a number of stories. That, so uh, would you present the truths and then they yeah. choose which one to go for? So, Bob, this is another of your music choices, and, and this is an extremely well-known piece, uh, often voted, I would imagine, at least top 50 favourite classical music pieces, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is the Chorus of the Hebrew Slaves from uh, Nabucco. Obviously a favourite of yours, Bob? It's um, an opera that Freddie de Tommaso appeared in in um, Amsterdam that my wife went to see. Ah. She made me have a listen to it when she came back because she loved it. And I did think that, that that particular piece was very striking. It's interesting because we were talking before about Otello, you know, was that, you know, one of the, one of the big favourites? And probably in terms of, of tunes that everyone would recognise, even if they didn't know where it was from, I, I don't think there would be any from Otello. But a lot of people would know the, that chorus of the Hebrew slaves, even if they didn't know where it was from. And I must confess, I don't really know the opera and I don't know any of the other music for it it is one of those pieces by verdi again who mm. also wrote otello uh, but it is one of those pieces that is well we're talking before it's just an amazing tune mm. it's a lovely you tune it's a, you've it's got a, um, the willow song from otello tip willow i well yeah That's i mean very famous bit isn't it yeah i mean I, i'm not here as a classical music expert i'm just here as someone who enjoys music and i enjoy classical music and i i like to listen to it and and, and share it so that is a great tip, and I will go and listen to Tit Willow. <laughs> no, come on, Bob, we're grown-ups. Um, so moving on, we're going to go from a very familiar piece to a piece that I should imagine most people probably listening will have not heard before, and it's very new to me. Um, I did a series before for Scala Radio. When I write, when I write books or a script, I put together a playlist of music to listen to while I'm writing. It's almost like a sort of soundtrack to that piece so that I can instantly get into the right headspace to work on that piece. Excuse and me, also, can I interrupt, Charles? Yes, yes. Of you course. can listen to music and write at the same time. Yeah, I, I had to teach myself how to do it because I, I didn't used to listen to music. It, it, it can be a distraction. There are a couple of composers that, that a lot of writers listen to. And actually it's interesting, because I suppose it goes back to what we were talking about, the, the piece of music that you chose for your um, fishing program, where you wanted it to sort of be there underneath, but not be too dominant, but to carry you through. And there is a lot, a lot of writers listen to Philip Glass. Right. That the, the long, slow, unfolding, rep repetitive phrases, certainly in his earlier music, is great. And it doesn't keep nagging at you and calling for your attention and saying, come and listen to this. I spend my entire life sitting at my computer writing. And I love listening to music. And I thought, I've got to work out a way that I can do both. So recently, 
I've been working on a possible project, just developing a project for a Swedish company set in Sweden. And so I've been listening to quite a lot of Swedish music. And I came across a Swedish composer called Wilhelm Stenhammer, uh, who was uh, self-taught. And he was sort of big around the turn of the, in the 19th into the 20th century. And you listen to that as you write your new project? Yes, because it gets me in the mood. Now, I, I had to listen to quite a lot of Stenhammer to try and find the one that worked best for me. Mm. get me in the right mood and i also and i and i actually grew to really like that piece and so um it's, it's fascinating Charlie. may i ask you putting together this playlist for a mm. particular writing project does that come before you start writing what i do now is as i start on day one i'll start putting that playlist together because also the other thing is you cannot sit for eight hours and just write you know, through that period, you have bursts of writing and creativity. And then, you know, you'll go and look at some emails or look at something, look up something on on Wikipedia that you might want to research and that takes you somewhere else. So actually having a, a, a positive distraction of thinking, I don't know, I need this type of bit of music to put in there. It's a great distraction. And then as you as you build up the playlist, it gives a structure to your writing day. Mm. Because it's like a soundtrack to your day. Uh, I mean, the, the the book I was talking about, that the the, um, the adult crime book, is set in Greece. So I've put a lot of Greek music in there, a lot of Rebetica and um, some classical Greek tracks and some modern tracks. And and again, it's it's fun because you're also researching a bit of music and listening to stuff you wouldn't normally listen to. And of mm. course, the great thing about Spotify is once you've got sort of ten or twenty tracks on there it starts suggesting other tracks you might mm. want to put in. And even if you don't end up using them, you're listening to stuff you wouldn't normally listen to. And I, and I do like that. I always like to find new things. Well, I'm writing this afternoon, Charlie. Give me the name of a Philip Glass piece that I should try. I'd like okay. To. Opening. It's yep. a piano piece. It's the first track on Glassworks. But also I found for my personal use... If you want to listen to more, the soundtrack to The Hours by Philip Glass. A, it's a fantastic soundtrack, but B, I found it is great writing music. And it's the sort of thing that, that you'll be writing away and you'll realise you've, you've played four or five tracks and you've not been aware of it. But you've also be, you have been able to absorb it and, and enjoy it by osmosis, I suppose. Thank you, Charlie. I shall do that this afternoon and report back. I'm Charlie Higson and my friend this week is Bob Mortimer. And I can't believe that sadly we are in the final furlong, the final section of the show. Uh, and we're going to finish with two pieces of music as chosen by, by Bob. Now, when I was uh, getting in contact with my guests for this series, I put in a few sort of prompts to try and sort of so ways that we could talk about the music. Uh, and one of the things I had on the list was, you know, first piece of music you might have listened to. Um, and I and I and one of them was, what is the what do you think is the sexiest piece of classical music? And Bob said, oh, no, no, I can't. I'm not going to choose sexiest. Can I instead choose the, the piece of music that I like to do the gardening to? <laughs> <laughs> You're not really comfortable talking about about sexiness, are you, Bob? Well, um, in terms of classical music, do you know, Charlie, I didn't really know what you meant. <laughs> well, um, you know, a piece you might put on when you're romancing a lady. 
I realise that gentlemen of our age have been very happily married for so long that, that those things are a distant memory. But uh, there's there never been any moments in your life when you've been stirred by a piece of music. It doesn't have to be classical. Can be uh, no, Charlie. Music. No. I once no. again repeat that I refuse to talk about this. Okay, well, let's talk about gardening. I would like to talk about outdoor classical music. One of the other questions I asked, a way of kind of choosing tracks, was which is the first piece of classical or orchestral music that you may have listened to? And you've gone for an interesting choice on that front as well, which is not strictly a classical piece, but it's Tubular Bells by by Mike Oldfield. Um and we're going to play the orchestral version, which they did as a, as a concert piece, I think. And, you know, that is that's a really interesting piece of music. It's got folk in it. It's got classical music. It's got rock music. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it is a really interesting fusion. You mentioned before that you were really into sort of prog rock or whatever in the yeah. 70s, which, which, which has a sort of overlap where prog rock was sort of taking rock music into more esoteric areas. Um, I suppose Tubular Bells was bringing classical elements into into the more familiar rock, rock areas. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I think um, probably that was my gateway to... Harder prog- classical music. <laughs> no, to, to prog music. Right. You went the wrong way. You should have gone was, the classical way, not into prog. It was the album that sort of taught me the discipline and the reward that comes from making the effort to listen to a long piece of music a number of times. Because, of course, when you're young, investing in um, an album like Tubular Bells, you have to save up quite a bit for it. It was an important yeah. purchase. Yeah. So I was determined to listen to it and listen to it until till I enjoyed it. Um, and it was very rewarding. And, um, you know, I was motivated because it wasn't some old German bloke. It was a bloke mm. that everyone was talking about at school. So I wanted in on it. I wanted to know what was... Uh, so so you, you would have been the classic sort of schoolboy in your bedroom... The record player in the corner. Yeah, thinking headphones on. And uh, no, I had I I had two wooden speakers, the little um, little setup we had, and I just used to put them next to my ear, like <laughs> like I used to sit in lie in between them, like right. So again, were you 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 didn't want to annoy uh, any other members of the family. No, exactly. Yeah, it's probably ruined my enjoyment. This is probably why I don't like this heavy metal stuff. <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought perhaps it's quite an important album for me because the music I've really enjoyed is what followed on from that, which was um, the prog rock of the mid-70s. Yeah, the and 80s. of course, you know, that that's a thing that the, the, the kids don't have, that investment in an album where, as you say, you you would save up and you'd have to carefully choose which one it was, and then you would listen to it as a piece, you mm. know, and particularly there, which is it's two tracks, essentially, isn't it? Side one and side two. I made an effort with Mike Oldfield because I'd I'd spent two pound ninety nine on it or whatever. Yeah. Um, I would think if either of my sons listened to that now, they'd just flick off it after five minutes. Well, Bob, I must say I've really enjoyed the last two hours chatting to you and and playing some fantastic music. And we have to say goodbye now, and we will do with 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 the some of the closing section from Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells uh, in the in the full orchestral version. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
Episode four of the Charlie Higson and Friends podcast concluded with a little clip of the orchestral version of Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield, played by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by David Bedford. The first extract of music was from Alternate Repetitions by Laurent Dury, and it was followed by In Paradisum from Foray's Requiem, performed by the LSO Chamber Ensemble and Tenebrae, available on the London Symphony Orchestra's own label, LSO Live. The brilliant Arabella Weir is Charlie Higson's friend in the next two podcast episodes. And if you'd like to discover more about classical music, then come and find us on Scala Radio. It's home to Angelica Bell, Simon Mayo, Mark Kermode and me, Penny Smith. Broadcasting across the UK on DAB Digital Radio, the free-to-download app, Sky TV Channel 0216, Smart Speaker and online at scalaradio.co.uk. 